We have to choose someone. Um, <clears throat> why just us? We represent all the great houses, but whomever we choose, they won't just rule over lords and ladies. Maybe the decision about what's best for everyone should be left to, well, everyone. <laughs> 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 Maybe we should give the dogs a vote as well. I'll ask my horse. Out <laughs> of Toddzilla Files. We're laughing. Welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, Toddzilla X-Pod, escapingthecave.com. Also, technically on Twitter, now there's no real social media presence out there. Don't bother looking for it. It's all right. Good with that. One final time, make sure you check those subscriptions. Make sure you're subscribed to a genuine and authentic Escaping the Cave feed. Pretty black and white picture. If you want to check out the travel stories I mentioned in the last couple of episodes, I think. Go to TonzillaX.com. That's my other website. I'm in a weird spot. I'm having to force myself to do this today. It isn't easy. I've been sitting in this studio for about three hours. I'm not kidding. I have stacks and stacks of material. See that? That I've uh, been trying to figure out a way to boil down into something cohesive. I don't really have a plan today. I've got a slight one. I don't know where this is going to go. It may just be one of those episodes where I just babble. Sometimes they're okay, and sometimes they're not so much. Today is uh, May the 8th of 2020. Managed to get myself out of the house last week. In the last week, last nine days or so, I've gotten out of here four times. Can you believe it? Four times. Oh, it was like being released from jail. Not that I would know what that feels like. Of course not. The fine, upstanding citizen I am, I wouldn't have any idea what that's like. But it did feel to me last week like I had gotten out of imprisonment. Of course, we're all confined a little bit these days. And one of the things that I did notice was that my psychological state improved greatly. I think that the uh, stay-at-home order, the, the quarantine stuff for coronavirus, I think has had a bigger impact on me than I was given a credit for. In fact, I know that's true. We left the house to go test drive a car. And I was having fun with the sales pig. <laughs> Over there, took the car out, went to show it to some people. Having fun with those folks, too. There's something that happened psychologically where I was just like, Ah, yes, people. My girlfriend's great. I've said she's a saint many times on this podcast. She is. And she's a wonderful person to be quarantined with. <laughs> but I'll tell you. It felt good to talk to some other people. And I didn't realize how good that was going to feel. I've uh, gotten out of here a couple other times, go buy some things, some stores here in the West Michigan area, starting to open up just a little bit, at least for things like curbside service. I vape. Had some problems with a vape thing. Do not buy. Actually, let me do a review for you today. I'm shooting a video. I was talked into shooting another one of these stupid YouTube videos. I don't know if I'm ever going to do another one of these. But if you're on YouTube, you see that? 
That's called a Vaporesso Target PM80. Do not buy this piece of shit. I bought two of these things. Not kidding, since uh, February. These are $40 pieces of vape equipment. They're great while they work, right? But both of them, the software has gone to shit within three weeks. And the vaping industry, while better than smoking, I'll give them that, they're better than the tobacco companies, the vaping industry is shady as shit. This is uh, a piece of crap from China. China, right? And supposedly, it has some kind of a warranty that you're supposed to be able to get. But the problem is, is when they go to hell, you got to deal with China. And they don't answer your warranty requests. They do not communicate. They're shady as hell. So I had a little uh, go-round with the people who sold me this piece of crap. <laughs> they didn't bother to stand behind it. They wouldn't make it right. Anyway, I had to do that, so I went and uh, did a little researching and uh, found another vape store that was open and uh, went and got another one of these little guys. Mm. But that's been ooh, that's been my adventures. It, it felt like, I don't know, like a Boy Scout going out on his first camping trip to head out to the vape store the other day. And this curbside stuff, man, it's weird. I actually went to two vape shops. The second one, it was really strange because they had to card me. They've got like this draconian policy where this face apparently doesn't look 21. I don't know. I think it's just what they do. I think they card everyone who buys from them. Anyway, as I go over there, I have to get out of the car, walk up to the window, take my ID out, hold it up to the window. And he's like, yeah, cool. He goes back, gets my stuff. And then I have to call him with the credit card information from the parking lot, right, to, to complete the purchase. Then he bags my stuff up, brings it outside of the door, and sets it on the windowsill while I'm in the car 10 feet away. It almost felt a bit like a drug deal via debit card. At this point, I will, I will take it. Again, now for the first time, that was the first time that I've worn one of these uh, infernal masks. <laughs> I don't enjoy wearing that thing. I wear glasses right there. And I've never had to wear a mask like that. And I haven't worn glasses but a couple of years. And I've discovered that they fog up like crazy. I don't like it. I don't enjoy wearing my mask. But I do. Wear my mask. I also took a trip to Costco, and that was fun. Not so bad. Definitely was not busy. Uh, but getting out in the world a little bit, see how things are, see it with my own eyes. And again, I noticed this um, back in March. I'd been ranting and raving about the coronavirus back then, and I got out of the house and went and did, I think, into a vape shop again, and I think over to Office Depot. And I noticed it's like people are friendly. People are like, I get the in this together thing to a point. <laughs> to a point. There is a you know, slight spirit of a cooperation, some good humor about it. This sucks. Yes, it does. I think it sucks too. And that actually is kind of nice. 
And people don't seem to beat each other's throats too much, at least here. Of course, there are stories. Oh, my God, of course, there are stories. I'll have more on this, I think, later on in the show. About how people are, oh, they're feeling like their freedoms are being taken away. Tyranny, tyranny, the, the tyranny of the mask. Uh, that's one of the reasons. I played the open that I played. Why don't we let everybody decide? Let the people decide everything. <laughs> that's a joke. It's a joke. It's stunning to me how anti-democratic I'm slowly because it's not even slow. It's rapid now. I used to be a bit of a populist. I used to be one of those folks that uh, ranting and raving about the people. We the people. I was doing it from the left end, sort of like the Bernie bros and uh, all those Bernie babies people. Talking about the people and democracy. Let us decide freedom, justice, equality, all that shit. And the combination of the coronavirus thing, the Donald Trump thing from the last four friggin' years, watching the Bernie bros, the Bernie babies, AOC's little cult, the justice warriors, the identity politics mobs and herds, I have slowly but surely begun shifting towards anti-democratic thinking. Not tyrannical thinking. More of a classical Republican mindset. The way this country was crafted. Where the founding fathers, when their version of whoever that fat guy is from Game of Thrones, would come out and suggest something down the line of direct democracy. How the people should decide everything. How, back in their day, there was a version of this when it was suggested. <laughs> Maybe we should give the dogs a vote as well. I'll ask my horse. <laughs> it is funny. I get the humor now. I really do. I was ranting to my girlfriend a couple of days ago. This has been uh, really gurgling up here over the last year or so. And it's accelerated like crazy, and I have gotten some kerosene for that fire from people like Mencken, Limpen, 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 Lipman, and Edward Bernays, and a few other folks. It's a conflagration now at this point. I was ranting at her about, you know, there's this idea. I mentioned it in the podcast before. That somehow, there's this theory, this humanist theory, that people, when they collect into a group, are somehow blessed by this immaculately conceived wisdom, right? The wisdom of the people, the people know what's best for the people. On the other side of this, (laughs) there's also this thing that people do. We all do it. Just about each and every one of us do it. In fact, I'd almost say that everybody says it at some point. People are so stupid. Except for me, of course. Except for my little group. Except for my little, you know, tribe. People are just dumb. You hear it about driving. You hear it everywhere about just just about everything. So there's a bit of a disconnect here. If so many people are stupid, if people are just dumb, what are you saying? When they collect into the herd, they suddenly become wise? 
No, it doesn't work that way. Mobs are stupid. The crowd, more lobotomized and I dare say clinically retarded than the ignorant individuals, the individual cells comprising it. Once you collect into a group, you get dumb. Err. So where's the where's the wisdom here? If you think everybody's stupid, and I've heard so many people say, oh, people are just dumb. Those people are dumb. How are you getting from A, that point, to B, the collective wisdom of the people? The herd's wisdom. How do you get there? You don't. You don't. What you want is the freedom to make your own decisions. Your freedom to choose. To have a say. I do too. There may be a degree of the same hypocrisy right here. I have my disconnects occasionally. (laughs) You remember what I said about consistency. But it doesn't make any sense. And then I think about Lippmann and I think about Mencken, particularly Lippmann, on the bewildered herd, or included it in his writing, however you want to look at it. Basically what he's saying is the people don't know a damn thing. They are given bad information or they seek out bad information. They don't have the mental resources to fully understand the things that they are supposedly expected to vote upon, to be knowledgeable about as part of an enlightened citizenry. They either don't have the time or they don't have the interest. Or they're hoodwinked. They're hoodwinked because people cannot possibly conceive the world around them beyond the tips of their own noses. Anything beyond your personal experience, my personal experience, is conjecture. It's dependent upon 2nd, 3rd, 5th, 10th, 20th hand information usually given to someone with some kind of agenda attached to it. How, pray tell, can you possibly think that the people are knowledgeable, wise enough to really understand what they're voting about or on? Libin talked about this a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, radio was in its infancy. There was this thing, a little bit of the the, the data overload effect. People were being pounded, relatively speaking, then. What is that, 30 years before television really took off? And they're already talking about the bewildered herd then. What did television do to that? What has the internet done to it? If that herd was bewildered a hundred years ago, I cannot think of the adjective to use now. It's beyond my vocabulary limit. I mean, bewildered's a a nice word. It, It paints a really good image. He used a line in uh, Phantom Public talking about how the people, the people, the people were so bewildered. They're like a puppy dog trying to chew on three bones at the same time. (laughs) What is it now? 
It's like throwing a puppy dog into a, I don't know, a bone-filled supermarket and watching him drive himself silly. Data overload all of it. There is no logical, rational, reasoned path to the enlightened citizenry today. To the wisdom of the collective crowd, of the people, it doesn't exist. This has turned into tribal partisanship, team sport, trial by rhetorical combat, the appearance of righteousness, the appearance of this, the appearance of that, as opposed to actually being righteous, to, as opposed to actually being right. The appearance over the actual being of such things. That's all this is anymore. That is as close to the truth as you're going to get. And nobody's going to tell you that. You're not going to find a politician saying, (laughs) you people don't know what the hell you're talking about. You just listen to what we tell you or what your media tells you or what the internet tells you. You have no concept, no first-hand knowledge of anything. No politician is going to tell you that, and the media sure as hell isn't going to tell you that because it's going to expose its own game of selling advertising you by giving you what you want. Filling the trough with ideological slop so you come to the screen to feed on what it is you choose to dine upon. The Media 101 model. With an added dash of hatred. For you YouTube folks, there it is. Read it. Hate Incorporated by Matt Taibbi. And people look at me, and I'm sure they do. I haven't had a real conversation with anybody, well, other than Chris. Travel Chris, Friar Chris. I talked to him a little bit. He's heading the same way. In his own way. But I'm sure that when I say this, that the people don't know what the fuck they're talking about, and you have your headphones on, or your little earbuds, maybe you're driving down the road in your car, you're like, what? No. Democracy. Democracy is flawed. And you throw this sort of data overload, drowning in absolutely disconnected data, agenda-tainted data, drowning in it, coming from every direction in a constant stream. Someone trying to take control of your mind, trying to guide you, trying to herd you in one direction or another, either ideologically, through advertising, whatever. How many are there? How many categories of this? How many categories of this sort of advertising psychology? How many categories of it are there? How much propaganda, disinformation, misinformation is out there and how much of it is pulling at you every single day? There is a path here. I want to try to be empathetic. I really want to try to be empathetic. I've tried, I've tried to talk about this on this show before where I understand it. There is a degree of understanding and empathy, even sympathy to be had here. If people were interested in that, The problem is, I spend a lot of time observing this in action. You know, I want to understand. I want to. I want to see how it's how it's 
you know, being worked each and every day. Particularly now, now that the crisis, you know, the warm glow of 912 is starting to wear off. And the tribalism is starting to ramp itself back up, even more intense probably than it was before COVID. As we near this election, the latest, most important election ever. <laughs> Just like the last two, three, five, ten. So I have to pay attention. I have to take this old material, the classical material. I have to take the material from the early 20th century. I have to take the Alul and the uh, Marshall McLuhan, Neil Postman stuff, the Nicholas Carr stuff. And I have to watch this and I have to try to put it all into context. At least do the best I can. I'm getting there. <laughs> That's why I have stacks and stacks of papers. You ought to see this the little ottoman. I had to bring an ottoman in here to hold it all. <laughs> It's hard work. But anyway, I have to watch. I have to pay attention to it. And that path to empathy, whenever I start paying attention, go to the zoo to watch the, the exhibits, that empathy evaporates because I see the strutting, oblivious stupidity of people who obviously just don't care. They have no idea just how functionally ignorant they are of these things they tend to want to preach about all the time. And it's really uncomfortable but for me because I know I've engaged in this. So I'm not talking too much about this COVID thing. I don't know. I don't know what the truth is, and neither do you. You have no idea. That's why you choose your brand. Because you don't know who to believe. You're just going to believe the preacher at the church. You're going to listen to the scripture that your preacher, your minister, decides to disseminate to the flock. If you had to sort through all of this information, piece by piece, on an individual basis, and you had to fact check it, you had to decipher all of the disinformation. You had to detect all the propaganda. You had to start carving it away to try to get to the bone of the factual base of this piece of information. If you had to do that every single... You can't do it. Nobody can do this. Nobody. And it's only getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, especially as the technology continues to explode in our hands. It's impossible to know what the truth is. I mean about future calamity I used to think the idea was obsolete Until I heard the old man dampen his feet You know, there's this thing that I've been working on This idea that I've had <laughs> Between uh, belief and uh, truth 
I've come to the conclusion that belief and truth, your beliefs here, the truth is here. These two things are mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist because if you believe something, you don't know the truth of it beyond the context of your uh, fictitious internal narrative. That's what beliefs are. I believe this. That means you don't know anything about it. You're making a comfortable guess. You're making a choice. To assume in your mind that this thing is factual. Hope that this thing is factual. Belief and faith. Faith and belief. Faith is belief. Faith and truth. Faith and reality are not the same thing. In fact, they are, I believe, mutually exclusive because if you know something, you don't need faith. And if you have faith, it's because you don't know the existence of something or the nature of it. That's the difference between belief and faith. Most of what we think we know is simple belief. Second, third, tenth-hand information is inseminated into our adopted and personalized grand designs. These grand designs that just happen, happen to integrate perfectly with the little stories we all privately write in our own minds about our own lives. We all have stories about our lives. They're little biographies that we write. When these biographies aren't going how we imagined they would, how the expectations were that they would go, well, that doesn't, that doesn't sit well with us. Anxiety sets in, depression, all sorts of things, but that's because of the expectations of the stories that we are writing within our own minds. Do you even realize you do that? It's something each and every human being does. We are storytellers. We are such storytellers that we tell stories to ourselves without even realizing it. Narratives. And I'll tell you, what use are these uh, internal biographies? What use are they to anyone without a heroic ending for the protagonist? I'm going to tell you something. That whole chunk right there, be careful. Be really careful if you decide to swallow that little apple slice there because this is not something that's going to set you free. If you look at it that way and you think of it in the right way, there's a certain essential beauty to our bullshit because that, that, that bullshit, those beliefs, those fictitious narratives are tethered to hope. The two things are inseparable. Beliefs and truth, mutually exclusive. However, belief and hope, those things are forever tied together in chains. The hope derived from belief allows us to function in the face of a reptilian, nihilistic reality. One that doesn't care if we live or die. A reality that actually ends in our own demise. Each and every one of us. That's hard for people to deal with. And we tell ourselves stories to get around to give ourselves a get-out-of-death-free card. Gives us hope that we'll go on after we die. We'll see our loved ones again. All that kind of stuff. It goes far, far, far beyond religion. Beyond life after death, though. And human beings with an infantile and egocentric sense of awareness, belief in something, bullshit or not. Belief in something is as basic a need as the air... You're breathing right now. And if you don't have that, 
Well, atheists are a hell of a lot more miserable and angry than believers. For a reason. Now, of course, there's more to this. Uh, the truth uh, ha, ha, is that uh, the world beyond our tips of our noses, as I said earlier, our own isolated experience, it's unimaginably complex, man. It's utterly incomprehensible to any shaved ape. Yes, even you. A kind of humility will not, however, suit our center of the universe ego. Just won't. Ape needs to feel a part of the enlightened group. The good guys. And most importantly, need to feel personally, personally and individually righteous. They are the hero. They are the good guy. Of course, they're writing this story. They're writing this, this novel of their lives in their heads. Of course, they need to cast themselves as the good guy and as the hero. Therefore, we need uh, the group for fellowship. Or well-intended self-importance lures us into something bigger than ourselves. Collective herd beliefs can be manipulated. They can be weaponized en masse. And they are. Rather than uh, personal psychological wellness tools, uh, these beliefs easily become fanatical tribal religions, something for a believing mob to inflict upon the blasphemous other. Behold, ah, the fundamentals of propaganda and disinformation, proselytes praying to be seen on every virtual street corner everywhere. Justice, I need justice. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Tyranny. Preaching the scripture, man. Preaching the good word everywhere on the virtual street corner that is social media. And also behold, why it's so easy to sell propaganda disinformation, to sell bullshit to the people. Because the people universally demand it. They do. In an instantaneously and globally connected world, though, that sort of psychological weaponization to continue the mythology theme is Armageddon. More convinced of it every single week that the devil unleashed upon the earth is us. It's time to evolve. Evolution does not wait for permission. And neither does extinction. We don't figure this out. Well, it's an unpopular observation that doctrinal belief and truth are mutually exclusive. I fully understand that. But finding truth, finding the truth, is an eternal process of seeking and exploration, not confirmation. Seeking and exploration versus convenient confirmation. Confirmation bias. Beliefs are a declaration of discovered truths. When you say you believe something, you're declaring that you have discovered the truth. That you found the answers to a mystery. Or preached on the street corner, digital or organic, doesn't matter which street corner, they almost always emanate from someone who wants something from you. Either money titles, publicity, status, votes, power, control, ego-fueling recognition perhaps, maybe some validation of their righteous virtue or support for one special interest cause or another. 
People inflicting their beliefs upon you, trying to convince you of them, want something from you. This is the same as Jim and Tammy Faye did. Fuck the preachers. We need seekers. We need millions of them. People seeking answers rather than proclaiming that they've already found them. I have had nothing to do but think these past few weeks about our bloody history, about the mistakes we've made. What unites people? Armies? Gold? Flags? Stories. There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. Nothing can stop it. No enemy can defeat it. I've been waiting to use that clip since I saw this in the season finale of Game of Thrones last year. Stories. We are a storytelling species. Many people believe that the rise of civilization itself was due to the unique human ability to engage in creative, abstract thought. The creation of language. An abstract endeavor. We're the only ones that can really talk. Maybe you think dolphins and whales, fine, whatever, great. Run with that idea, write a book about it, I'll read it. But as far as we know for sure, human beings are the only ones who can really, really communicate with language. And a lot of people think that ability to come up with abstract ideas, symbolism, led civilization along with uh, the rise of mythology and fiction. A collectively shared common fiction. Cohesive stories allow groups to cooperate. Gives them a common bond. Cooperate with each other. And uh, as the mythologies evolve, move from bands to tribes to complex societies and forge cooperation with other groups within the society. You have a common foundation, a common belief, a common narrative, a common story. That allows... Each and every one of these groups, these these different tribes within the collective society, allows each and every one of them to thrive within it. And it also allows the external tribes to thrive as well, freed from the threat of decimation by the neighbor. There's a common threat, a common bond, an agreed set of standards by which to live on. It's the American myth. Every nation has their myth. The American myth, you know, all men are created equal, that kind of stuff. Republicanism as opposed to direct democracy. I won't go back there. Not just yet. That's what it is. Fiction is ancient. It's prehistoric. As I said before, we are storytellers. We create these stories to make sense of what we cannot possibly understand. We also write them for meaning, find our place inside the sea of chaos, to ease one point of anxiety that each and every one of us, actually, I would say, each and every species that we know of, has always shared. The one anxiety that we share with every living being on this planet is our own mortality. We don't want to die. We have a survival instinct, most of us. It's questionable whether the folks who are not wearing their masks in places like Detroit and New York 
whether they have a survival instinct, but most of us normal people do. We don't want to die. In fact, we are quite anxious about the fact that we will one day. Whether it's conscious or unconscious, each of us know we're going to die one day and that bugs the shit out of us. We're the only species that's conscious of that anxiety and what it means. That causes problems, psychological problems, to an infantile ego that doesn't know its place, hasn't figured out its purpose. Only awareness, only consciousness. That's it. That's all we have. <laughs> what are we supposed to do with it? What does it mean? That's what we start asking. Well, we, we can't possibly answer that. We're like cavemen trying to explain a thunderstorm when it comes to stuff like that, so we create stories. Hey, Thor, he's throwing the lightning bolts from heaven. Yay, God. That's what we do with these other existential questions. That's what we do with death. We neuter it by saying we live on. We deal with the grief by telling ourselves that after we die, if we're good, pay our tithes, we'll go to heaven and we will see grandma, mom, dad, Fido. There's no end. That's what we tell ourselves. That's a story. That's the things that we tell ourselves. One of the things that we tell ourselves so we don't drive ourselves nuts. I think it frees us to go about the business of our lives without being a basket case the rest of the time. But it goes beyond just death, man. Society binds us together, gives us a common sort of foundation. It puts us on the same team, at least on a larger scale. There are teams within it, but if the, if the narrative and the story and the myth is strong enough, the subgroups can exist within it beneath a common flag. The symbol of the myth, the symbol of the national grand design is the flag. Got a bunch of them behind me here. We are storytellers. And I'll tell you, when it comes to religion, I've said this a number of times, you better be careful killing the gods. Because some other deity, one way or another, another deity, another rendition of some future utopian paradise other than heaven, some concoction of that's always going to fill the void. At least the Bible, the Christian Bible, at least that taught or you know, tried to teach anyway, collective flawed humanity. It gave us an externalized idea of our own duality. The good and evil that potentially resides within each of us if we're not careful. Yes, it externalized it with God and the devil and all that. But it gave us that sense. It gave its followers that sense that they were flawed, that they were broken, they, they were not perfect, that they themselves were not God. Because once you're God, what's the limit to your self-righteousness? If you yourself are on your way to becoming God, or maybe you think you already are God, a collective, I don't know, human God, <laughs> if that's you, well, you can do no wrong. What's the limit to your righteousness at that point? I've had a, a history with religion. I had my own once upon a time, and I lost it. And I, I railed against institutional corporate religion for a number of years. I've made peace with it, at least. I don't know that we're really friends, but I get it. I, I, I think I get it really well. 
I can appreciate it. I can appreciate where the need comes from now because since I've lost mine, (laughs) I'm starting to understand what I lost. So, I will say this. I'll implore you that even if you are an atheist, if you're a non-believer, if you think that all those people are beneath you because they believe these silly things, and if those people are not swinging their religion around like a big phallus, slapping you in the face with it, leave them alone. Let them have their religion. Let them have their story. Because, brother, I'll bet you, I'll bet you, I sit you down on the couch, you have an honest conversation with me for 20 minutes, I'll find yours. You've got your story, too. Each and every one of us has it. And just because somebody believes in Jesus and believes that they're going to see grandma after they die, just so they can go on, just so they can move forward with their lives without being in anguish, without being in confusion, without being in a state of utter and complete bewilderment, existential bewilderment, just because somebody does that, and you think you're above it, if you try to take that away from them, if they're not swinging that phallus in your face, it's an act of cruelty. If you could take that away from someone who's harming no one, who's not trying to recruit you, not trying to condemn you as a blasphemer because you don't believe the same myth they do, if these people are not doing that, and yet you still presume to believe that you're in, a, in, in such a holy and righteous and truthful place, so attached to reason, that you'd presume to take that away from them if you could, It's an act of cruelty. You're a cunt. I'm kind of talking to myself five, six years ago here. If that's you, stop that. Leave people the fuck alone. Because, I again, I'm going to say it again. I guarantee it. I'll find yours. Let's sit on the couch. I'll find it. I'll dig it out of you. Dig that sliver out of your brain. I'll show it to you. Here it is. (laughs) You're no better than them. And if you're one of these folks who preaches the the good and holy progressive doctrine and religion, it's effortless. Your utopia is their heaven. Your God is the God of external cosmic justice and equality. Utopia and justice. External justice, cosmic justice, this automatic standard, this, this tangible Thing that apparently you think floats through the, through outer space, the Justice Comet. It's just as much of an imaginary deity as Yahweh. Be careful. <coughs> oh my God! I got the Rona. Two, two, quatre, 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 eight. 8 et 8 font 16, répétez dit le maître. 2 et 2, 4, 4 et 4, 8. Et 8 et 8 font 16, mais voilà l'oiseau lire qui passe dans le ciel. L'enfant le voit, l'enfant l'entend, l'enfant l'appelle. Sauve-moi, joue avec moi, l'oiseau. You got the wrong nambler again. It's North American Marlon Brando lookalike association. Come on. Blah, blah, blah. Mais l'enfant joue, 
I looked all over for this song. It's a real song. I won't even begin to try to pronounce it. I think the, fir- the guy's first name is Ives something. It's happy. Et tous les enfants I wish you could see me right now. I got my hands in the air. I'm going to let this finish. Because I'm going to take your emotions in the other direction here in a minute. Enjoy it! Et le professeur crie Quand vous aurez fini de faire le pitre Mais tous les autres enfants Écoutent la musique Et les murs de la classe S'écroulent tranquillement Et les vitres redeviennent sable Let me turn this into my new music bed. I want to hear the beginning of that one more time because it's just, it's simply awesome. I won't let it go that long. Just check it out. I have no idea what this guy is saying. It's just so happy. And the French language just makes it awesome. Because French is awesome. Wouldn't it be funny if it was just filthy? Alright, enough of this. I'm trying to lighten things up here at the beginning, because the, the rest of this podcast is a little weird. It's 24 hours later. It's now Saturday. Early morning of Saturday, May 9th. I had to uh, go through and I had to square some things. I had to polish some edges there, because the material that I was talking about earlier on in this episode... There's a pretty clear disconnect, I think, when I'm talking about beliefs and truth and reality, things like that, and how these beliefs fill a need. They fill a void, a very human void. (laughs) We're talking about this with this music under me, but I'm going to keep it going. It does, though. Hope, purpose, answering questions, the grand design, all that kind of stuff. And I stated earlier, rightfully so, truthfully, that I have made peace with these belief systems. People need it. I understand that. And I, you know, I regret and have apologized in the past for what I have, the judgments, I guess, I've sort of lobbed at religious people. Despite my own experiences, I'll get to a little bit more of that here in a couple of minutes. But there is a difference here. There's, there's a disconnect because politics... 
The ideological kind of religions offer the same things. They give you answers. They explain the world beyond your your uh, personal firsthand experience, things you cannot possibly understand because you cannot see them for yourselves. So you can get inside of this ideological bubble for explanations, for senses of purpose. Do you think utopia is not... <laughs> Like an ultimate destination? You want to get to heaven? You want to get to Oz? It fits the same purpose. It really does. And there is a disconnect there. I noticed this. I I thought about it last night when I finished recording this because both of these things are true, both with the religious and the political aspects of religion. The religious mind, as Jacques Ellul put it. They do serve a purpose. So... How do I differentiate between the two? How can I be so judgmental about politics, about the political religions and theologies, yet, by the same token, be forgiving of the religious kind, as long as they're not swinging the, the, the doctrinal phallus in your face, smacking in the cheek with it, trying to save you. Then all bets are off. I don't know that I emphasize that enough in the episode of the part of this episode that I recorded last night, but that's the difference. As long as no one is trying to recruit you, leave them alone. As long as they're not trying to force their religion upon you, as long as they're not trying to get Sky Daddy and the Zombie Messiah all up in you, what does it matter to you what they believe and how they get through their day? That's my point, but there is a disconnect here. And again, ideology serves almost the same purpose as religion. It offers this framework. It provides a personal uh, and a herd, both personal and a herd sense of righteousness. The same as religion, that you're on the side of good. It's the imagined uh, ordering of what is essentially an abstract fairy tale of a world. A political mythology that allows the followers to think their adopted, inseminated beliefs have solved the mystery just like religion. It lets the faithful Congregationalists believe that they have found God's divine plan. It is, to keep the theme of this podcast intact, it is a story, an internal narrative, an internal fiction, a grand design explaining the natural universe with simplistic scripture. And like most other religious fanatics, when they've convinced themselves that they've found God and are on his team, that the deity works through him personally, the self-righteousness coming with that narcissistic delusion provides a sense of manipulated and manipulable purpose. It can be guided. The herd, the flock can be tended and poked and prodded in a certain direction becomes a quest to find their way to heaven, utopia, a crusade in the name of God. Be it Sky Daddy, St. Bernie, the Virgin AOC, I doubt that, or the Derp Messiah himself, Mr. Trump. You're serving God. You're on the side of righteousness against evil. Again, this is Jacques Ellul in The Religious Mind. I have an episode. I meant to go back and actually get the episode number, but it's back there. It's labeled The Religious Mind. It's probably in August of last year. It's worth listening to. 
Uh, I did uh, take a lot of stuff directly from his book, Propaganda, and added some things to it. But that is the religious mind. And the religious mind, propaganda, disinformation, (laughs) those things go hand in hand. The minister at the church is the same as the propagandist on the television. Same general idea. The Mormons knocking at the door are the same ones, same people who are trying to lure you into the ideological church. And it's tempting, as I said, to classify political theology with the religious kind. Put them all together. That they're all the same. They're not all quite the same. They're related, but they're not identical. Again, the answers for the blind, bewildered herd, a sense of purpose and hope, single-sized self-righteousness that feeds off the collective herd, casting yourself as the political hero in your internal life novel, getting sucked into the addictive mob mentality of congregational fellowship. These things are similar. Proselytes who go out crusading to either save or, if they can't save, conquer the savages who worship a false god. These are the similarities, and it's that last part that I think makes the distinction. The word crusaders, I think, works. I don't think I've used that word enough. Let's call activists, political activists, and ideological fanatics by their proper name, crusaders. In the classic sense of the term, the only difference is they're not quite putting people on stakes and burning them because the barbarians worshiping an improper deity. Not wielding swords in the desert quite yet. That's where this comparison breaks down, man. Both theological and ideological tyrants dream of their righteous theocratic utopias. Religious tyrants are on their way to heaven. Political totalitarians are marching toward utopia. These are different manifestations of abstract ideas that you could classify as paradise, heaven. The ultimate goal, heaven on earth. And as I thought about this, this is where it really, I think, took hold, the difference and the distinction. The key difference is that the religious zealot has an option of limiting the practice of his particular mythology to himself. His path can be solo. In fact, his scripture, at least the words of his uh, zombie messiah, encourage the solo journey. It's typically the herd corruption induced by organized zealotry that sends the... uh, faithful out to crusade and conquer barbarian savages. They do it in a group. You don't see singular crusaders out there, do you? No, you've got a mob, you've got a group, you've got a herd of crusaders who are out to conquer the infidels. These folks want to legislate the fairy tale into compulsive practice and national law, a theocracy, to erect the Ten Commandments in governmental buildings. And this, of course, will spawn the influential critter like William Jennings Bryan, Mike Pence, Jerry Falwell, grifters like Jim Baker. Had a stroke this week. I'll miss him. How about you? And countless, countless others. This is swinging the religious phallus in the collective face. In this regard, religious and ideological crusades are no different to me. It's a self-righteous intention to inflict your abstract belief on the non-believer. This is the definition of a tyrant. Textbook. 
Religious fanatics have the option of having a personal relationship with their God. Admittance into the uh, afterlife's Oz is granted on an individual basis. You don't need, it's not a requirement to convert the country to get your 72 virgins. Not required to bring everyone under (laughs) the religious umbrella or the uh, doctrinal umbrella in order to get your heavenly reward. All you have to do is follow the rules yourself as an individual. And you can still get into heaven. Supposedly. Now, political zealots, on the other hand, do not have that option, do they? To manifest utopia, lands must be conquered. Peoples must be converted or conquered. If the promised land cannot be saved, the only option the ideological fanatic has is revolutionary force. Are you ready for the revolution? Are you? Take them at their word when they use that kind of language. They mean it. This is the crusade. There's no such thing as a personal relationship with politics. Politics is the art of recruiting, inspiring, and guiding the herd toward a desired response and a desired outcome. What good are single men enjoying their personal relationship with the word of Marx or Bernie or the Gospels of St. Jefferson if they don't join the herd? If they don't vote, or failing that, if they don't take to the streets and join the revolution, what use are they? They may as well kill themselves. They're useless to the political Borg. In fact, you know what? They're less than useless. Their nonconformity is an impediment to any future utopian tyranny of enforced unanimity. They will have to be dealt with eventually, so they're below the uh, status of useless. They're problematic. This is exactly why. I can make peace with the theologically faithful and refuse at the same time to abide the ideological zealot. A person can, in practice, refrain from waving the big black cock of belief in your face and still get to his heavenly oasis in the sky. The political zealot can't. At some point, that zealotry must become tyrannical authoritarian. Unanimous conformity is impossible. He'll want to enforce it. Eventually, he'll want his own commandments hanging from the state house walls. There's a quote I like to use. The only enemy is authoritarianism, extremism, radicalism of any kind. Any group, I don't care if they're conservative, liberal, religious, I don't care what it is. In a country of 320 million people, if you're presuming to demand conformity to your belief system, you are the problem. If you're going to demand that 320 million people conform and practice your cult's rituals and belief systems, you, sorry to say, are a tyrant. 
There's no other way to put it. This is the bane of my existence. This is why I chose propaganda, disinformation, social media, the herd mentality, the group mind. Because this, in this day and age with global connectivity, having a broadcast unit in your pocket to be pinged or to ping others at will, whenever you choose, is dividing us into these cults. These political and ideological cults. And this is turning this country, this particular country, steadily into a version of the Middle East. Where you've got extremists, religious extremists. I don't care if they're political, they're religious. Okay? Religious extremists on both ends of the spectrum getting ready to engage in a holy war for the promised land. That's pretty much the point of this podcast. I'm trying to get through your heads how propaganda, disinformation uses these ideas, this need for belief and purpose, to feel righteous, to be the star of your own narrative, your own internal story, the novel you constantly write and update and read every single day in your mind, how all of that combines as a Trojan horse, to expose the hole in your psychological firewall. And mine. (laughs) Fair enough. Look, I appreciate the comfort, the illusion of personal righteousness, the burning sense of existential purpose, the warm uh, evolutionary glow of the herd, and the fellowship. I experienced it all. I have And I've lost it all. I have. I know what these things mean and the emptiness their absence leaves. I do. I get it. But I also know where that intoxicated sense of arrogant moral certitude leads. It is, again, let me repeat it, the gateway to propaganda and disinformation. This is Heights Elephant's heroin. And you will get hooked on it before you know it. You'll be in a constant and perpetual state of morally certain intoxication. Where does that go? When you've got groups and hordes, hordes of millions of people gathering into these mutually exclusive and combative cults, equally balanced, somebody has got to win. Somebody's got to fight. And when you get to that point, when you fight, there's eventually going to be a winner. And the other half of the country, the ones who lost, are going to have to be dealt with, suppressed. What do we call that? When one group in the country has to suppress and oppress The beliefs of the other half of the country. What do we call it? Do I need to say it again? It starts with a T. (laughs) I'll let you finish that sentence yourself. But to designate yourself and your group as the chosen ones, crusading for God against the forces of evil, that's what this becomes. Is there anything off the table? Anything. Anything at all. Out of bounds. 
when you're fighting with God's army against Satan's? I don't think so. It goes against reason to believe that you're going to play by rules when you're fighting against your perceived Hitler, your religion's mortal enemy, your ideology's Hitler. <laughs> and what if there's no good choice here? I was thinking about this earlier. When I was writing this stuff up, trying to sort it out. Think it back to Spain. Uh, probably the 30s, I guess, right? There was a civil war in Spain between the fascists. The fascists were trying to take over Spain against the communists. Communists and the fascists were fighting each other in Spain. George Orwell, love the man, appreciate the man, respect the man, because he was a raging socialist. Early 30s, mid-30s, he was, oh boy, was he left. And he went to fight fascism in Spain. And he joined a regiment, I guess, of some sort of, um, I don't know, socialist, communist, whatever. They were going to get rid of, what, Franco? Is that who it was? I think so. And then he started to see how bad, how bad the, uh, uh, the side he was fighting on really was. He was shot in the throat, I think. I think he was deemed a traitor by somebody in the Communist Party. And I think he was actually shot by the side I think he was fighting for. I don't know. I need to go read homage to uh, Catalonia again. I can't remember the details of it, but either way, he went to fight the fascists in Spain and what came out, wound up coming out of Spain, realizing that the neither one of these extremist alternatives <laughs> were going to work. You suck and you suck too. Uh-uh. He came out and wrote Animal Farm after that. He wrote 1984 after all of this. If you notice, Animal Farm... Was, well, you don't need to notice it. It's a historical fact. It was banned in the Soviet Union. It was banned in all the Eastern Bloc countries for a long time. It wound up circulating on the underground. In fact, I think he wrote a, an introduction to the edition of the book that wound up being passed around subversively through those Eastern Bloc countries. Yeah, he's talking directly. Those characters, there's a Stalin in there, there's a Trotsky. And this comes from a guy who was a passionate socialist in the 1930s. 1984 is not ideologically specific. I know you want to think it is. If you're a socialist, if you're a leftist, you're a far lefty, you're going to see Donald Trump when you read 1984, and you're going to, you're going to see everything about conservatives when you read 1984. But the problem is, is that the conservatives are seeing you guys when they read it. And here's the thing. Orwell wrote it because you're both right. He wrote it in that context. He wrote it in uh, the context of a ideologically neutral, authoritarian, tyrant. Anybody who's trying to uh, compel society, their society, into unanimity. Much of this, a lot of this, a ton of this came out of his work his experience, I should say, in Spain and then working in the propaganda, working for the BBC. He was a propagandist during World War II, working against the Axis, working for the BBC. Lippmann had the same. People who work as propagandists, when they get an inside look at this, come out with some incredible insights. They understand how it works because they've produced it and manufactured it and used it. That's how he got Newspeak and all this other stuff for 1984. Orwell knew what he was talking about. He saw both sides of it. He saw the blackness of both sides. 
And to bring it back home, that's where we're headed. This bilateral reactionary extremism of both sides is going to leave us eventually with no good choice. The only alternative, the only option, the only future we are going to have is to fight. And when we start to fight, somebody's got to win. What happens to the losers? What is your plan to subdue the opposition on the day of your glorious victory? I've asked that question so many times, I can't fucking count them anymore, and I have never in my life gotten an answer. What you going to do, Bernie bros? What you going to do, Antifa, on the day you win? What you going to do about the Proud Boys? What you going to do about those conservative Trump voters who hate you? Even if you've won the war, how are you going to subdue them? And I'll ask the same question. When the battle starts, Trump bots, what are you going to do about AOC's crowd? What are you going to do about the Bernie bros and Antifa? How are you going to deal with them? Do you have a plan? Of course you don't have a plan. You know, 90% of you have never thought about it. (laughs) 90, that's low. 2% of you probably have. And it's like one of those lightning quick flashes of thought. I don't want to think about it. I'll worry about that later. Probably in and out of your head in a split second, right? (sighs) This is a paradox. I'm going to wrap this segment up with this because it is a bit of a paradox. Take it back to the believe hope thing. People need it. People need to believe in something. There has to be something you're going towards. This is all about the narrative, the stories that I've talked about, also mythology, religion, tribalism. Dostoevsky, the struggle thing that I've talked about, how people need to be working toward something, a sense of purpose, a sense of hope for achieving something, reaching something in the future. There is a struggle <laughs> that re- that human beings require. And these wildly confused human psyches are unable to translate their own internal psychological language as well. Because half the time, most of the time, almost all of the time, we don't think about the thoughts we're having. And once we do start to think about them, they are confused. It's hard to track them. A lot of this stuff is just reflexive. And when it's reflexive, it can be manipulated. Something else for you to think about as if I haven't given you enough today. The point isn't reaching heaven or achieving utopia. All right? It's the feeling that one day we will. It's the journey, the hopeful, purpose-filled journey that one day we will arrive. It's not the destination It's the journey. It's the journey, not the destination. Life's a journey, not a destination. I think that's Aerosmith. That's the thing that powers us. That's the thing that fuels us. And religion and political ideologies, they are both things that exploit that. And the engine for the exploitation is propaganda. This isn't hard to understand, man. The human core is fueled by hope, and hope breeds enthusiasm. Enthusiasm triggers purpose. Purpose leads to action. Purposeful action spawns a sense of utility. That's one of the pillars of happiness is feeling a sense of utility, of usefulness, and existential fulfillment, righteousness. Being a good person. Without that fundamental sense of hope, real or imagined, again, it doesn't matter. Nothing else follows. We suffocate and die even if we continue living. 
This is a paradox. I don't know what to do with this. Jacques Ellul put forth in his book, Propaganda, that this was inevitable. The propaganda was inevitable. Thomas Hobbes in Leviathan said that free societies are destined to civil war. Simply because of human nature. Narcissistic wants, desires, even needs. These conflicting stories, these conflicting tribal narratives. When people cordon themselves off and and fence themselves off into a group, what do you do about the group over here that wants the same thing you do? I am not a Thomas Hobbes expert. I haven't uh, read a lot of dissertations on Leviathan. (laughs) I do know enough about it, though, to say that his premise is that uh, uh, societies, super societies are destined Destined to be ruled by authoritarians if they're to remain peaceful. Because if they're not, if they're not, if the people are too free, if the democracy is too direct, it'll descend into chaos, civil war, violence, bloodshed. And, uh, well, then you got a choice if you're the government, right? Is there a difference between the authoritarianism before the chaos or the authoritarianism that's going to come after the crackdown? to restore peace and order. These are heady, deep, uncomfortable questions. Nobody's asking you these things. Nobody's telling you these things. Nobody is pointing them out. I don't know why. I have ideas. And I think one of those reasons is because, you know what? They don't sell. People don't want to hear this. They want a message of sausage party hope. They want to hear how it's going to be okay. They're children demanding to be comforted, demanding to be protected from the boogeyman lurking under the bed. But that doesn't change anything. An eagerness to avoid the truth doesn't change the truth. Shoving your head in the sand during a hurricane doesn't stop the flood. Just like everybody says, hey, I'm in the no bullshit zone and I'm no spinning and everybody thinks of that and none of them are doing anything or saying what their clack is going to applaud. Right. That's not gutsy. Gutsy is to tell your adoring fans what they don't want to hear because it's the truth. Right. Well, that's what makes you so singular and remarkable. Finally, we got to something. It's a little different with political comedians because they stay within whatever the liberal doctrine is. They're not going to upset their audience about that. episodes I'm going to get into the schizophrenic sense and relationship that I have with hope. My own sense of purpose and utility for doing all this because I'm struggling with that. (laughs) Believe me. (sighs) Days I just want to beat my head into the wall. That was Bill Maher and Jerry Jerry Seinfeld back there, by the way. Comedians in cars getting coffee. I think that's what it's called. It's funny as hell. I watched a bunch of that yesterday. Good stuff. You've never seen it. 
EscapingTheCave.com, ToddZillaX.com. Those are my websites. Go check those out. There is no social media that you need to worry about. It's okay. I'm going to be all right. I'll try to get by without it. I will. Thank you ever so much for clicking in. Having a rough time getting these things out. Trying to get the message right. I'm working on it. God damn it. Quit criticizing me. (laughs) He says to no one in particular. I do have an idea, though, where I want to go with this. I'm not going to make any more promises about future episodes, though. Till next time, so long.